0: Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of adoration as your ways are good ways. Every word you speak is true and your righteous rules endure forever. You are whole in your trustworthiness. You are whole in your wisdom. We never need to doubt your goodness. Help us, Lord, when we do doubt your goodness. When life is hard, give us joy, knowing you will use it to conform us to your image. When we are wronged, remind us we are in good company with our Savior who called out for the forgiveness of those who wronged him. Help us when we don't want to follow your good ways. Remind us that our covenant commitment to one another means we can call each other and ask for help when we need it. Help us to direct each other to see you and your holiness and let that lead to praise and faithfulness from our hearts. We pray, Lord, for other churches who are seeking to proclaim your gospel here at the ends of the earth. Specifically, we pray for the Branch Church in Corvallis. Give their leadership courage to preach the gospel, and nothing but the gospel, in the face of opposition. Protect that congregation as the enemy prowls about seeking to destroy. Give them a passion for your word so that their witness will shine as a beacon of hope in you to that whole community. Father, our presence here is our confession of our need for you. We are here because we see our sin. You have sought us out and your spirit opened our eyes. We see that our hearts don't always desire your good ways. We are tempted by lusts, we are saddled with pride, and we are consumed by hate. Father, free us from this and forgive us for these sins. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, use your word today to humble us. Only our, hope, our only hope for life is through submitting ourselves to your teaching. So please open our hearts to you in Jesus name. Amen.:
1: Amen. 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 You can have a seat. Why don't you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 32. I'm always cautious to mention movies as I don't want my statements to come across as a resounding endorsement. So as I use a movie in my illustration here, remember that I am not necessarily endorsing it. How many of you have seen the last Avenger movie, Endgame, anybody? It's very popular in our society right now. This week I was watching it. I'm a little bit behind the times, always am. And in this movie, if you've seen it, there's a good portion of the end where in the movie, there is this epic battle scene. It's the most epic battle scene I think I've ever seen in any movie. The computer graphics are astounding. And as I was watching this final epic battle and thinking back to other movies or stories that I've seen over the years, I realized that the plot of this movie, Endgame, had a very similar and common plot to many other stories and movies. Two massive armies go against one another, the good side and the evil side, and it seems in these that the evil side is always led by a strong, seemingly unbeatable evil character. Have you ever noticed that? And then often, the only way he can be defeated is by the sacrifice of a hero figure. I also thought of the movie Braveheart with Mel Gibson yelling freedom as he was giving his life, right? Some of you who are more dated like me are going to remember that one. Right? This is always part of the plot line, and this plot line is so common in stories and movies because it's been at the center of mankind's narrative since the fall. Ever since man was promised to crush the head of the serpent, mankind has been looking forward to the day when evil is removed from God's good creation by the sacrifice of a hero. That is part of uh, our nature as humans. And on the way to this final battle in all of these stories and all of these plot lines is a common theme that the evil in the world will often make one final push to secure its place only to be pushed back and ultimately destroyed. Now this storyline is found at the heart of mankind because friends it is found at the heart of the story of God and his word. What we will see this morning as we look at the closing sections of Daniel chapter 11 is a similar earthly scene where the forces of evil are brought to their culmination, their highest point, and they are pictured as aggregating into one final rebellious battle only then to be destroyed. Now remember that Daniel chapters 10 through 12 are to be read together as one uh, big piece of text, but we have broken it down because, well, time. Uh, You guys probably don't want to give me four hours of your time on a Sunday, and so we've broken it down so we can dig into it. It's one literary unit, though. We've simply parsed it for the sake of time. In this unit, there is this curve that happens from the spiritual realm in chapter 10 to the earthly realm and then back up to the spiritual realm that we will begin to see today and on into next week. Chapter 10 begins with Daniel being given insight into the spiritual reality in which rebellious spiritual demonic beings are in conflict with holy angelic beings. And then, as we noticed last week, chapter 11 moves from that spiritual realm into the earthly realm and shows the parallels between human kings and kingdoms battling against God's people uh, attached to demonic realms. And there, last week, we looked at the depth in that actual history of what occurred between the 4th century B.C. and the 2nd century B.C., It's surrounding uh, Israel and its surrounding neighbors dealt with the actual events of history that we outlined last week, and you can go check that out online. And so we've seen thus far in chapter 11 that the earthly and spiritual realities mirror one another in rebellion against God. And now as we curve back up out of the earthly realm that we covered last week, we will eventually land back fully in the spiritual realm in chapter 12, where we will see a mixture of earthly and spiritual realities that have left scholars and commentators at a bit of a loss as to what it all means. As we read through our text at the end of chapter 11 today, you're going to read it and think, oh, well, that's confusing. But my hope is that as we dive into it in detail, we will be able to see its underlying principal truths, that the rebellion against God and his people is on a trajectory which will eventually come to an end. But in its midst, in that trajectory, while rebellion is increasing, we, the church, we are called, even commanded, to not lose heart and to not fall to the deceit, flattery, and seduction of any worldview or ideology that might pull us away from the stable rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we're gonna look at our text today as a continuation of what we looked at last week, part two, if you will, of standing firm in the knowledge of God amidst rebellion. Standing firm in the knowledge of God amidst rebellion, part two. Now, in our effort to understand and apply, we will not only finish Daniel 11, but we will look to some New Testament passages to enlist those apostolic authorities to help us interpret what we are reading in Daniel and may seem a bit ambiguous or confusing. So let's go ahead and dive into our text this morning with the section we ended with last time, beginning in Daniel 11.32. And remember here that we're talking about the earthly realm and events that already occurred, Daniel 11.32. He, speaking of Antiochus Epiphany, "...shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white." until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. As we saw last week, the historical line of chapter 11 ends here with the Syrian or Seleucid king known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the manifestation of God or God incarnate, Antiochus God incarnate. Now he committed unspeakable acts, which basically destroyed the Jewish religious practice And bankrupted their worship, even putting a pagan idol in the middle of their temple. And we learned last week that this was only possible because he had been seduced, or excuse me, he had seduced many of the religious leaders of the day to back his explicitly anti God, anti Judaism worldview. But the author reminds us that there is a remnant. A remnant that would stand strong in the midst of tribulation and persecution and even death being refined until the end. The section finishes with the statement that God's people will do this until the time of the end. For that end, the end of that trajectory of rebellion, it still awaits an appointed time. And thus, a great debate for the ages is sparked with the question, what is meant By the end or the appointed time. When is that? And what is the timeline we're supposed to go with here? Is this speaking only of Antiochus? Is it speaking of a short history thereafter? Or is it even further into the future? Well, let's read the next section and find out. Verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships." And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. Let's pause there for a moment. Here what we see is an unknown king that is the culmination of earthly rebellion. An unknown king that is the culmination of earthly rebellion. Thus far in Daniel, you may have noticed, especially those of you that come from backgrounds or churches that are very heavy into future prophecy, You may have noticed that we have done our best in Daniel to not fall into the trap of prognostication or attempting to lay out the specific events of the end time and setting dates, so to speak. The reason for that is that those things are a distraction from the ultimate point of Daniel. That in spite of current circumstances, God is in control and he will eventually rescue his people. Amen? That's the point of Daniel. And as we have seen, he would do so through the Son of Man of chapter 7, the Messiah, the King, the Judge to come that we know as Jesus the Christ. But this text is one specifically speaking of the time of the end. It describes in detail the qualities of an unknown king. And so there are really four possibilities that I want to present before you for who this king is. First, it could be a continuation of chapter 11's last focus, Antiochus Epiphanes. It seems that he meets most of these qualifications. For example, he did not follow the religion of his fathers. He did not follow them in their worship of Apollos. He did not submit himself to the God that is beloved by women, Adonis. Instead, he worshiped Zeus, and that is the pagan god to whom he set up worship in the temple. He obviously thought himself above all gods. God manifest was his own nickname for himself. And so this could be talking about Antiochus. But thus far, notice that the language has changed a bit as we move into verse 40. Antiochus has taken the place throughout the rest of chapter 11 as the king of the north, but this king does not seem to. He's referred to as just a king. In verse 40, it seems that he is different because in verse 36, he's got, or excuse me, verse 40, he's got both the king of the north and the king of the south coming against him and his armies. He's a different king than either of those two groups that have been portrayed throughout the rest of Daniel 11. So this idea that it's just Antiochus, well, this is pretty unlikely. Second option is that it could be a later king, maybe a Roman emperor, maybe somebody like Nero or Domitian. But the problem here is that historians and scholars, they have scoured the depths of history and looked, and there is no known sequence of chronological events that would even partially fit into what verses 40 through 45 are describing. So this too is unlikely. Third, it could be just a type or a figure that illustrates all future earthly rebellious leaders. Pretty much everybody who steps into politics to some extent believes they are God's gift, don't they? I used to be in politics, so I can say that. But this too is unlikely, as the detail in verses 40 through 45 seems to speak of earthly occurrences, like the rest of Daniel 11. The fourth option is the one I feel most compelled to show you. This is where verses 36 through 39 is a transition text in which it's taking the qualities of Antiochus Epiphanes and speaking of them in a way that could apply to many future earthly rulers. But ultimately, they're brought to culmination in a final world ruler, a king that is the pinnacle of rebellion against God. You can think of Daniel as speaking of prophecy in a way that's kind of like a corkscrew. It goes around and around, hitting the same points time and time again until it reaches its end point. History would, did, and will repeat itself with rebellious, evil, earthly rulers, leading the beast of the political state until it reaches its final end point. But now let's be cautious of becoming prognosticators that scan the headlines for who this world leader is at the expense of living out the commands of Christ to go and make disciples. Instead of being prognosticators, let's go with the principle that underlies this text regardless of which view is correct. You see, in my enti- the entirety of my life, I have heard this text applied to every president that's ever come. And I'm sure it will be. But instead of doing that, let's look at the underlying principle. The principle is that there will be earthly rebellion that mirrors spiritual rebellion. And this rebellion will move on an ever-increasing trajectory towards the point at which God has determined an end and said, enough. And when that culmination of sin and rebellion comes, at its forefront, leading it, leading the rebellion, will be a world leader who epitomizes the heart of Satan in pride and arrogance toward God and toward his people. Now, this is not something that will only be present in a future world leader, though. It has already been present and will still be present in world leaders to come. It's already present in the church and will be present in the church, but it has not reached its culmination. You see, the idea of humans desiring to reign without ultimate submission to God has always been there, and it always will be there until this point at which God says, enough. Thus, throughout the Old Testament, you have these comments about world leaders that link them, intimately to the ultimate rebellion of the adversary of God. I mentioned last week that you should read Ezekiel 28 and its linked to the king, the earthly king of a place called Tyre. But here's another short one regarding the king of Babylon that I'll give you as an example. This is Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. This is speaking of the earthly king of Babylon in context. But then, Isaiah says how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. It sounds like Lucifer. It sounds like Satan, the very adversary of God. And so in this context is this almost uh, intersection between the earthly king and the the heavenly uh, demonic power. And we see them mixing together. We see this idea that spiritual rebellion sits behind earthly rebellion. And that will continue until the Lord calls an end to it all at his appointed time. But then not only will this culmination of earthly and spiritual rebellion happen in a future world leader, but he will also initiate a final push of rebellion against God in the midst of Israel at the end of days. So the next thing that we're going to see is the last stand of rebellion and its assured defeat. The last stand of rebellion and its assured defeat. We started to read it in verse 40. Let's pick up there. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, this king, but the king of the north shall rush upon him, this king, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, that's Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, with none to help him now as i already noted even with valiant attempts no one has been able to securely attach the events spoken of here with any actual series of events that have occurred in history thus far so in a sense it remains to be fulfilled now this is odd because of the intense detail of chapter 11 so far in verses 1 through 35 you saw last week and you can go revisit online how it was Very accurate comparing to that history between the 4th and 2nd centuries BC. So if this that we're reading today was indeed a prophecy, why would the accuracy just simply stop? If this was written, as more critics have claimed over the last couple hundred years, that it was written later, past the events that occurred, say in the 2nd century BC, why would they record some events so accurately and then throw in a false prophecy at the end? The solution is that this was indeed a prophecy, but Daniel was given a vision that was telescoping. In other words, he saw it as one compact unit, but as you pull it out over the course of time, you see that it actually extends. It's telescoping. In other words, from his vantage point, the vision covered one linear integrated chronology of time, but what he was really seeing were events scattered throughout the future of humanity as if they were mountaintops, and he couldn't see the wide valley of time between them. This would then mean that the events at the end of chapter 11 are closer to the end of days prior to Christ's judgment and everlasting reign than they are to the events of 2nd century B.C., What we are told here is that this world leader will eventually set up his base of operations in Israel. He will align with some nations who will be spared from his fury, but then others, including the kings of the south, the north, and the east, will come against him. And then ultimately, he will come to his end with none to help him, which is simply a figure of speech, an idiomatic way to say God will destroy him and no one can assist him. And so volumes upon volumes of ink and paper have been spent trying to speculate what this event is going to look like, who the world players are, and what geopolitical events need to happen as precursors. There are churches that do special teachings regularly to declare their theories that are always changing depending upon the times. But friends, is that the point of Daniel here? To provide a future generation with enough information that they or we can decode its special meaning to be able to calculate the date of Christ's return. Is that the point? No, it's not. It was for the purpose of providing comfort and endurance in the midst of rebellion. Remember that Daniel and the Israelites are already exiled in Babylon and they are asking God when their time of exile at the hand of their rebellious enemies will truly be finished. And so God, in loving response, lets them know that there will indeed come a day where their enemies and really all that rebel against God will be destroyed and brought to an end. And this final battle between good and evil is spoken of in a number of places throughout Scripture. Each one acts as a different camera angle on the same one scene. In Daniel 11, it speaks of the kings of the south, the north, and the east, Converging on this anonymous, rebellious ruler in a place where he has set up camp between the sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, and the Holy Mountain. This is commonly thought of as the Jezreel Valley, or the site of Tel Megiddo, otherwise known as Har-Mageddon in the Hebrew. Har, mountain, Megiddon. It's the mountain of Megiddo, or Har-Mageddon. You guys have heard of that probably. This location is not surprising to anyone who studies military history. This wide open valley has been the site of many battles throughout time, including many of the battles referred to already in chapter 11 from the 4th through 2nd centuries BC. So it would make sense that this would be the site within the vision of the final battle of rebellion of the nations against God. And this battle is referenced in a number of spots. You can read about it in Ezekiel, in Zechariah, here in Daniel, and in the book of Revelation. But let's just look at a few in the book of Revelation so we can gain kind of an understanding and attach it here to Daniel 11. Go with me to Revelation, starting in verse, or chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. And I'm going to just read through three sections, and I want you to see how they are all referring to the same event in time. Revelation 16, 12 through 16. Now remember, this is apocalyptic, much like Daniel. It uses symbolism, drama, a uh, passionate uh, language meant to evoke an emotional response. And it's showing in symbolic language what will occur in this final battle of rebellious evil against God. 16:12 The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. "'And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon "'and out of the mouth of the beast "'and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, "'for they are demonic spirits performing signs "'who go abroad to the kings of the whole world "'to assemble them for battle "'on the great day of God the Almighty. "'Behold,' God Almighty says, "'I am coming like a thief. "'Blessed is the one who stays awake, "'keeping his garments on, "'that he may not go about naked "'and be seen exposed.'" Verse 16, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called har Armageddon. Take a look at chapter 19. Chapter 19, many of you are familiar with this section. Remember, all of these are different camera angles upon the same event. To read Revelation linearly, as if it's one chronology from beginning to finish, is errant. You don't want to do that. If you've been taught that way, it is not a good way to read Revelation. Seeing these as the same event with different camera angles is very important. And if you're interested, we'll go through Revelation sometime next year, so you can rejoin us for that. But here, Revelation 19.11 casts another camera angle. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, who's this talking about? Jesus Christ. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Take a look at 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended... and ever. Again, you will notice that each of these poses, similar statements of activities regarding the battle, each of these again thought of as camera angles on the same event, the same scene. But at the end of the day, even with these various camera angles, I want to ask you, what is the point of these scenes? Is it to give credibility and detailed identification to the rebellious world leader that has behind him the adversary of God? Is that the point? The point is to show that even this leader, in whom all the earthly and spiritual rebellion culminates, even in him, he has no power over the victorious and powerful Christ. Amen? The point is to show that rebellion may be on a trajectory that seems as though it is growing and taking over, but it is no matter Because spiritual and earthly rebellion has an end at the hand of the king of kings and the lord of lords. And all he has to do is say the word and it is finished. You see, friends, the bad news that the Bible gives us is that the world was in the grip of the adversary who deceived us. Because when God gave authority over creation to mankind, we quickly, furiously handed it over to the adversary of God. Our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, voluntarily handed it to him by the original rebellion against God's command. And in that state, you and I and all of humanity have been born in original sin and were doomed to righteous judgment and condemnation for our rebellion against our holy creator. We were enslaved to our sin, blinded by it, easily deceived, unable to break ourselves out of the evil that oppressed us. By the grace and mercy of God, the good news came because he sent his son Jesus, born of a virgin, into our world that he might live a truly sinless, perfect life, perfectly imaging the heart of God in his ministry, and then dying a death that he did not deserve to pay the price for our rebellion. In that death on the cross of Calvary, Jesus took on the weight and the punishment of that rebellion that broke us apart from the Father and leaves us in division from him for eternity. He made it possible for us to receive forgiveness of our sins, forgiveness of our rebellious hearts, and be restored to relationship with him. And then by his spirit, he was able to change those hearts from hearts of rebellious stone into hearts that desired him. You see, three days later, Jesus resurrected from the grave in victory to prove that he had overcome and that he had bound the adversary. He poured out his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his apostles so that they might begin taking the good news of this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what Revelation is talking about in Revelation 20, is that Satan is no longer able to fully deceive the nations because the gospel has come. It is this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of his spirit that breaks all mankind free from our enslavement to sin and the evil that binds us in the power of the adversary. This is the gospel that breaks the deception of Satan and of any world leader who operates within his power. Friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ intimately as your Savior and King, If your life has not been fully handed to him in submission, this is the gospel that will break you free from the clutches of sin. If you want to know about that gospel, grab the person that came with you or brought you. Come talk to one of us that are leaders in this church. Look around for somebody who looks like they know what they're doing here and talk to them about the gospel because you need it. Without it, you are blinded and deceived and on your way to hell. Deception is the character trait of Satan and the character trait of this world leader to come. Four times in chapters 19 and 20, the word deception or deceit is used, and this should remind us of what we read about with the leaders that belong to this model made explicit in the example of Antiochus Epiphanes from last week. Remember what it said last week about Antiochus in Daniel 11.32 that we started with this morning. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In other words, in all the people that proclaimed to be God's people at the time, there were those who truly were faithful to the covenant and stood firm in God's truth and did not bow to this world leader. And then there were those who said with their mouths that they were part of the covenant, but instead violated it and stepped into submission to this leader who preached nothing but things antithetical to the covenant they had with God. Daniel was speaking clearly to God's people then, and he still speaks clearly to us and to any future generation of God's people as we grow closer and closer to the time of the end. Regardless of who, when, or how rebellion comes against us and against our God, we know what to do. God's people stand firm in truth, against the deception of rebellion. God's people stand firm in truth against the deception of rebellion. Now, to help us apply this, I want to turn for this last point to a section of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is utilizing the text from Daniel. You'll notice in what we're about to read that he grabs from Daniel and applies it and, in a sense, gives us commentary And so would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, and we're going to see the Apostle Paul's teaching on this anonymous king who comes, 2 Thessalonians 2. Give me an amen if you're there. Here, Paul gives the New Testament church a bit more information, commentary, if you will, on this ambiguous final figure from Daniel. So let's break it down and take a look. We're not going to get into the intense depth I would like to, but uh, we'll take a look at it and expose what it's saying. Chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one, what's that word there? Deceive you in any way. Notice that's a command, it's an imperative. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness or sin is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Does that sound familiar? Straight out of Daniel 11. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Let's pause there. It seemed that the local church in Thessalonica, like our local church today, was being shaken in mind or spirit, alarmed because of the chaos around them. The reason being that someone in the church was spreading false doctrine that the day of the Lord had already come. They, like we, had people within the church making eschatological claims that were simply untrue. But then Paul gives a stark command. He says, let no one deceive you. There's that word again, deceive, deception. It carries with it the same idea of the seduction and flattery of Daniel 11. It seems that the same deception of the nations that occurred in Antiochus Epiphanes' day will again prove true preceding the return of Christ. And he then states that two specific things must happen prior to the Lord's return. First, a rebellion, and then the man of lawlessness or sin is revealed. Now, notice the same wording is used here in 2 Thessalonians as was used in Daniel to describe this world leader, the arrogance, the pride. There is a self-exaltation in worship that surpasses anything seen before. His arrogance is at the level of being anti-God and anti-Christ. In order for him to be revealed, though, the rebellion happens first. And this rebellion is intimately tied to the idea that whatever is currently restraining the power behind this anti-Christ figure is removed or minimized. The word rebellion in the Greek is apostasia. It means a defection from the truth. The word rebellion means defection from the truth. And this is where we get in English the word apostasy. Let's keep going in verse 7 there. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Paul says. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. There's that parallel again, spiritual and earthly. With all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, this obviously could be a whole other study. But the key here, linking it back to Daniel, is that just as the Jewish leaders of the day of Antiochus Epiphanes were flattered or seduced and deceived into backing him and going against the covenant with Yahweh, something similar will happen directly prior to Christ's return, for God's people again will be deceived to a place where they actually welcome this figure. What the Bible teaches is that at the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus overcame the serpent, And began pillaging the kingdom of darkness, so that you and I were drawn into the kingdom of light. And he did so with one thing, the revelation of the gospel. The truth of God shown to men and proclaimed through the church. By the truth of this powerful message of Jesus' death, resurrection, his atonement, the enemy was bound, he was no longer able to deceive the nations, to the degree he had previously. And many people might say, well, Hans, he's not bound. Look at the evil around you. Yes, but look at the power of the gospel in removing the deception of the nations. At the end of days, directly prior to Christ's return to judge the living and the dead, the adversary will be released again for a short while to deceive. How could this be? What is it that needs to be minimized in order for him to run rampant? An apostasy a defection from the truth. Churches no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This deception is that the gospel is discarded and minimized. Similar to Antiochus Epiphanes' day, even those who consider themselves God's people could be deceived. How? How is this possible? Look again at verse 10. It says that with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because... They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God assists them. In other words, he sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Because they refuse to love the truth, the gospel, and be saved. They refuse the gospel of Christ and its surrounding worldview. And because of this rebellion, this apostasy, God will assist them in hardening their hearts against the truth. He will assist in sending strong delusion so that they may cement their condemnation. And the world may say, what an evil God, but friends, that's a perfect gentleman. You have one of two trajectories. You can either be on the trajectory that is pursuing Jesus Christ, pursuing his gospel and proclaiming it to the nations, or you can be on the trajectory that is slowly but surely minimizing it until it disappears from your life and is replaced by a lie, a deception from the enemy. You have one of two options. There is no middle ground. Yeah. Decide this day whom you will serve. Yeah. They refused the gospel of Christ and its surrounding worldview. Friends, this is what occurred in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. How did someone so evil and deceptive find their place as a ruler over God's people? Well, the people themselves, who should have known better, were deceived and seduced so that they believed and trusted in things which were completely against God's word and command. The world will be deceived because they are already deceived, but it is those, it is when those tasked with the proclamation and protection of the truth, when they set aside that responsibility and buy into deceit that minimizes the gospel, this is when the enemy has room to move, when the church lays down its weapons of warfare and welcomes with open arms the deceiver and liar into their midst. Only in the proclamation of the gospel is the adversary of God restrained. Only in the proclamation of the gospel is the adversary of God restrained. Brothers and sisters, this deception has already started. How do we know this? Right here in the word, Paul notes that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the first century church. If we were to skip over to John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he references the spirit of Antichrist that is present in the church, attempting to draw people away from the truth of the gospel, saying Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That was what they were facing then. So it's always been present in the church age. But it's when the church forsakes its task of preaching, proclaiming, living, and protecting the gospel that Satan's deception begins to spread. The church is the bulwark of truth in the world, and when it opens its doors, the world is deceived again. What deceptions do we see pervading our culture? Paul gives us an understanding of deceptions and says they will be there, but he doesn't give us detail. We have to then apply it. This is where application comes into our contemporary current day. What are the current day deceptions? What deceptions do we see pervading our culture and creeping into the church and deceiving even those who claim to be believers in Christ? Let me give you some of them. Let me give you six. You can write them down. The first is the lie that we are victims instead of sinners in need of salvation. That we are victims instead of sinners in need of salvation. And this can best be seen perhaps in the victimized and therapeutic nature of our culture. Now, as I say this, please remember that I went to school for counseling and mental health, and I see great value in many of the tools and theories that this discipline provides. And I thank God, at least weekly, if not more, for godly professionals in this area, even within our own church and those that I refer people to. But at the same time, this overrealization of a therapeutic mindset in our society has made it so that every person is a righteous victim and those around them are unrighteous sinners that have caused them hurt or harm. Personal responsibility has fled from public discourse. In doing so, we have turned ourselves into lawgiver and judge and made God beholden to us. But the truth is, is that every one of us is not a righteous victim. We, instead, are instigators of rebellion against a holy God, and we deserve nothing but death, hell, and eternal separation from him. We are owed nothing. Nothing. And yet, in grace, God died on our behalf while we were rebelling against him. Can you believe that? Our lives should overflow with thanksgiving, not complaining Therapeutic tools are indeed helpful, but if they lead to the realized self as the ultimate goal, rather than to the glory of God, they have deceived us and led us away from the ultimate solution to evil, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is assisted by the second lie, the lie that truth is relative. We have become beholden to people's perceptions of truth rather than the absolute truth in God's word. When we proclaim, quote, truth to me, or my truth, we make ourselves God, king, and judge. We are so worried about telling our own story that we have forsaken the commission God has given us to tell his story. God alone, by the Holy Spirit, is the one who can peel back our blindness to reveal the truth of reality. Because a society based on relative truth will become a society of mob rule and chaos. Does this sound familiar? Only in one truth, the truth of God's word, will we find stability and peace. But that truth is dismissed because of the third lie. The lie that God's word is not sufficient to deal with evil. The statement you will hear is that the gospel has been around, but it's not solved our worldly problems. So it must be deficient in some way or else it would have fixed everything already. This says that we should instead rely upon human wisdom and solutions. It dismisses the fact that the reason things aren't fixed is for our refusal to submit to God's divine reign. And this quickly leads to the fourth lie, the lie that the church is the problem, that the gospel is the problem, that God is the problem. Rather than recognize that the common problem mankind faces is sin against the holy God, And the fact that from this originates all other suffering, the church, the gospel, and the idea of God himself is presented as the problem. The church is blamed for everything in the media lately from low vaccination rates to the spread of coronavirus to racial division to gun violence to high suicide rates in those operating outside of God's design for gender and sexuality. Even within the church, Brothers and sisters who make up the body of Christ speak as if the church is some faceless organization rather than the very body of Christ they are responsible for protecting and building up. But they forget that without the true church, the gospel would not be preached, the truth would not be preached, and we would be lost in deception. If the church is the problem, then that supports the fifth lie, the lie that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the solution. You will hear that we need solutions for practical issues, not just spiritual issues. But friends, all issues that humanity has originate from our enslavement to sin. Any solution we come up with will not solve the ultimate evil of the human heart. It just will not. The only solution to the ills of the world is the reign of Christ. But a world that has forsaken that then believes the last lie. The lie that government and policy change is the solution. Now, before you think I'm getting political, let me offend all of you. This deception is found on both sides of the political aisle. One side says that if we can simply get back to the ideas of the past, we will finally be righteous again. The other side says if we can throw out our past and legislate a new morality of a different sort left up to the social media mob, we will finally be righteous. It says that government alone can take care of the ills of society. Friends, the word says that only the righteous government upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ will flourish. And so all of these ideas, you can see that they lead to a place And there's probably many more I could cover if I had more time. Where the gospel of Christ is minimized at best. The truth is removed. There's a defection from the truth. And it's dismissed completely at worst. And the world looks to governmental rule to be the solution. Do you see how this paves the way perfectly for an unsuspecting world to be seduced by a world leader that proclaims to have the answers? Just listen to me and I will keep you safe, they say. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world, and it is warring against the church to undercut the gospel. And one day, we don't know when, it will culminate in this ruler that will wage war on the saints because the saints, the true people of God, refuse to bow in submission to him. The ideologies that will allow him to do so, friends, they're already present and they're becoming more mainstream day by day by day. So what do we do? Well, we do what Daniel and what Paul call us to. We stand firm in the truth. Remember back in Daniel 11:32 through 33, it says, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. What should the faithful do while so many are being deceived? Stand firm in the truth of God's word and teach others that same truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the same advice and command that Paul gives the church in Thessalonica that is warned against the deception of the Spirit that is against Christ. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians 2 again in verse 13. Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. There's the truth, our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Brothers and sisters, each of you has been chosen, called, and sanctified in Christ by belief in the truth, the worldview of the Bible and the gospel it presents. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church that proclaims it that the world knows salvation. The word here rendered in the English traditions is a Greek word that means traditional instruction, instruction that has been handed down. We are to stand firm on the orthodox truth of the Bible and the gospel that has been passed down since Christ. We need nothing else. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, and I'll finish by doing this. Are you prioritizing? Are you holding firmly to the Word of God as it's taught in this church and as it's been handed down through history? Or have you started to wander off and become deceived by some of these earlier ideas I laid out to you, the contemporary deceptions? Friends, you are the church, and the church is tasked with the protection and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not just my job or the pastor who's standing up here's job on a Sunday. It is our job, every one of us, to go into the world and proclaim and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ and to stand firm upon it when the world tries to deceive us into believing anything else. Is this your mission? Is this your personal mission? I hope it is. I pray it is. We as elders pray it is that all of us have this mission because with every passing day, it becomes harder and harder to stand as a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian in this world. So, dear saints who I love dearly, stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm and take action in protection and proclamation of God's truth. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me finish with the prayer of Paul that he uses to conclude this section. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them
0: in every good work and word. Amen. Amen.